Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, good morning. Um, I am the short-term mission mobilizer for Multiply, so we we uh, do a lot of training. Uh, we we do we call our short-term mission programs actually discipleship training programs, and so we disciple people before they go out on mission, and then try to walk with them after mission. This is my lovely wife Karen over here, so um, she is definitely my better half. And uh, I have a family with two sons. My uh, youngest son actually works with us at Multiply. He's an apprentice. And my older son, Chris, he works for the city of Fresno. But uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about discipleship because I believe in America we're at a crisis point right now. I think we've redefined discipleship away from what Jesus actually intended. Most of us, when we think of discipleship, we think about this region of the body. We think about getting content into the brain. We think about knowledge. I was just in, in Thailand and uh, on the border of Laos with Ponkal Kiovale, one of our leaders, and he has said that he believes one of the issues in the American church is that we concentrate so much on knowledge that we lose the focus that Jesus has on actually transformation. That he wants to see us have transformed life where Jesus has ownership of every part of our person, the interior, the exterior, yes, our minds, but also our will and our motives, our priorities, our checkbooks, that we want to see Jesus Lord of all things. And so I'm very interested, and as I was talking to Pastor Brian about this, he said, I'd like you to do a discipleship series It's very dear to my heart. One of the scary truths is that we always reproduce who we are. Think about that for a minute. We reproduce who we are, not who we want to be. We reproduce the very thing that we are, the presence that we are in Christ. An apple tree cannot produce oranges. And so why does discipleship matter? It matters because you are reproducing yourself in relationships around you, regardless if you think you are or not. The DNA that you have within you, spiritually, is being on display. And so discipleship matters, and we want to become more and more like Jesus because it matters. And in the next four weeks, we're going to go there. We're going to take a look at how Jesus made disciples. We're not going to come up with a plan a discipleship strategy for you that you can just put into effect because we tend to do that as North Americans. We tend to want to do things. You ever notice that? We're more concerned about doing than being. I want us just for the next four weeks to think about becoming the disciples that Jesus wants us to become. In fact, I have a companion book that's uh, it's available on the back there. It's called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert E. Colvin. Has anybody read this book? All right, I see a few hands. This is actually, it's like a case study for how Jesus made disciples. And it's one of my favorite books. Every apprentice or intern that comes to MB Mission, now Multiply, we, we make this a requirement. They read this, they look at the eight principles, and then we start to talk and discuss how Jesus made disciples and how we want to make disciples as well. These are the principles that we want to we want to practice. And so this is a companion book. I'm not going to be preaching through the book, but I highly recommend that you get it. It's an easy read. You can read a chapter a day or a chapter a week, 
and you'll hear some of the themes as I'm speaking, but I highly recommend that you pick up this classic by Robert E. Coleman. It's dated at least 40 years old, forward by Billy Graham, who talks really highly about the book. But it's impossible to learn how to disciple well without knowing Jesus well and how he trained his disciples. So I want us to take a look back at the early life of Jesus. Prior to his baptism, we don't have a whole lot of understanding about Jesus. We understand that Jesus has always existed as part of the Godhead, as the Son and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit Trinity. We understand that he has no beginning, he has no end. We, we understand that he was the creator of the world. The book of Colossians says that when the earth was created, that was Jesus doing the speaking in creation. So when, when he came to earth, it's not like he began his life. He's forever existed, eternity backwards. He's God. He just happened to change his shape, came in the form of a baby, and he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy. When he landed in Bethlehem, um, that wasn't the beginning of his life. It was the beginning of his human life. We know that the Magi visited Jesus, that evil Augustus was out to destroy the young boys, we, we know the stories about the shepherds and the angels, a few other details, but really on his early childhood years, there's not much written about the life of Jesus. And then it fast forwards to when he's 12 years old and he gets left behind. You guys remember that story? On Passover, his family leaves. They were assuming he was with the crowd, but he wasn't. And they found him talking to the teachers of religious law, the elite teachers in the temple. And he's there teaching them, and he's astounding them with his wisdom as a 12-year-old boy. So that's an aha moment as we look at the life of Jesus. He goes from being a baby to being a 12-year-old boy and blowing people away. And then we jump to the fast forward to the time of his baptism. And then from his baptism to his resurrection, there's a ton written on his life. And that's where we're going to concentrate. And today we're actually going to take a look at the baptism of Jesus. And we're going to look at why was that so important? Why was the words that were spoken by his father so impactful for you and me to consider? And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. We're going to start there. And verse 16 says this. After his baptism, Jesus came up out of the water... The heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. I love the fact that we see the Godhead all involved in the baptism of Jesus. For the first 30 years of his life, he was involved as a carpenter. He was fulfilling what all Jewish boys would do. They, they worked in the trade of their father. But at his baptism, it's his anointing into the new public ministry that God would have for him. He, he begins his work as Messiah now in a public way. And we see the Spirit of God descend upon him. We see the voice from heaven declaring that this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And we have to understand one key point here. For 400 years, the nation of Israel went silent 
prophecies ceased. It was a time when they weren't hearing from the Lord. Outside of the printed word of God, they were having no new prophecies from the Lord until John the Baptist showed up. And John the Baptist shows up and he's announcing the coming Messiah. He's saying that I must decrease so that he will increase. And that he's the one that actually baptizes Jesus. And all of a sudden, God is moving after 400 years. And this is new. And the Hebrews believed that when God would speak, that they could hear his voice, that that was as good as they got during this time of no prophecy, the 400 years of silence. And yet now they get both. They get John the Baptist announcing Jesus, the new Elijah, if you will, and then they get to hear the voice of God. And what he says is something that you and I need to hang on to. He tells them, this is my beloved son. I believe that a lot of us as disciples struggle in life because we really don't believe that's true about us. We have an identity issue. We believe that God is in heaven and he's judging our behaviors and he's not pleased with us. We put our head on the pillow. We go to bed with all kinds of regrets. We woulda, shoulda, coulda. We look at our lives and we say, I've fallen so short. God must be disappointed in me. And I believe it's one of the biggest lies of the enemy. I believe when God looks at his child, he loves us regardless of where we find ourselves. And for you to be able to say, I am a beloved son, I am a beloved daughter of Jesus, and I believe that with all my heart. And I'm going to carry that identity with me everywhere I go as a son, as a daughter of the king. It changes everything. See, Jesus knew where he came from. He knew who he was. He knew why he came. He knew where he was going. He he existed in perfect fellowship for eternity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Perfect love for each other. And there was a time when all that existed was God. No creation. No created things. For eternity backward, God was very self-sufficient. He was very fine just enjoying the fellowship of the Godhead. Jesus experienced this. He knew that the Father loved him. He knew that the Spirit loved him. They were in perfect oneness for eternity. They knew no beginning. And they know no end. So Jesus knew his identity. But my question for you today is, do you feel as if you are the beloved of God? And do you feel in your heart of hearts... That he finds joy in you? Think of this as a parent. How often did we love our children in spite of shortcomings? We never turned them in, did we? We, They were all keepers. How often did we find ourselves just enjoying who they are as they were exploring life together? I believe that's what God thinks of us. I realize this love of God very much when just three and a half months ago we'll go to the slide of my granddaughter this is Graceland my youngest son Michael this is our our first grandchild her name is Graceland Ann and she wrecked me Uh, she's going to get everything she wants Um, and I always just realized something that this baby comes into the world after doing nine hard months on the inside, she comes out 
And she has a family on both sides of her mom and her dad that just love her. We can't wait to see her. We look for an excuse to go by and visit. We hope that they ask us to babysit. She's three and a half months and and our house looks like she's taken over for the last five years. We have more baby things than I think we own all together combined. It's hard to walk. You bump into a stroller or a swing, but it's she's taken over. But you know what? Graceland has not done one productive thing for society since she's come into the world. <laughs> she's really good at crying when she wants to eat. And she's really good at letting us know when she needs a diaper changed. But as far as contributing any good to the world outside of just being Graceland, she hasn't done a thing. But she's loved probably more than anybody in the family. See, it's not a conditional love based on what she does. It's not on her performance. She's loved because she belongs to us. She carries our DNA. I'm very glad she got a lot of her mom's looks. And she's just a part of the family. And we have to understand, beloved of God at Bethany Church, His love for you is not based on what you do. In fact, the scriptures say, we love because He loved us first. And we have to understand that. We have to believe that God finds joy in me. Jesus took this with him because right after he hears this word spoken over him, this is my beloved son, my dearly beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. He was about to go take on the devil in a gauntlet in the desert. Did he need to hear that his father loved him? He knew it, but don't we love to hear it? I love it when my wife says, I love you. Or my sons, I love you, dad. Just because... My wife told me she loved me when I proposed. Doesn't mean that she has to stop. And I love telling her I love her. Beloved. It says in Matthew 4, we're going to go right into the testing of Jesus. So we're going to see how would he, how would he walk as a beloved disciple, if you will, only doing the will of his father, not doing anything for himself, But coming as a Messiah, as a servant, how would he do for the next three years, beginning with the temptation in the desert? And how would he model for you and me what a disciple should look like today? Verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. You might think, what a mean Holy Spirit. You know, this was a showdown. This was, this was God correcting a lot of the evil that happened, especially as we go back to the people of Israel. It says in verse 2 that for 40 days and for 40 nights he fasted and he became very hungry. And verse 3, during that time the devil came to him and said, if you are the son of God, if you have your Bible, underline that word if, if you have the NLT. Tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So it begins with an identity test. 
Well, the enemy says, if you are the Son of God, he knew very well who Jesus was. Jesus cast him out of heaven, and he saw him fall. But he's challenging him. He's looking for an opportunity so he can get his way to get Jesus to compromise with three key temptations. I think these are the temptations that are the grandfathers of them all. That the ancient one, the evil one, the father of lies is coming after Jesus to try to get him to compromise in one way to give up the foothold of his lordship. The question was, would Jesus finish his fast, the 40-day fast, and would he trust God to provide food in his time, or would he take matters into his own hand and, and make bread out of rocks? Is he going to trust, trust God as his provider or not? If you remember back in the, in the Old Testament, the Israelites had to depend every day on God to provide manna for them. He said, don't collect too much. The only time they collected a little extra was was when they were coming upon the Sabbath. But he said, only connect, collect enough for the day. He was teaching them to trust that God would supply what they needed on a day-by-day basis. That they shouldn't trust themselves. They shouldn't hoard things. They should place their trust in God. And Jesus, at this point, is actually referring back to that event when he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And 40 is a very important number. If you remember, 40 days was the intended time frame for the, for the Israelites when they were rescued from Egypt, when they would go to Canaan. But because of their rebellion, it turned into how many years? 40 years. Moses, before he came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, he fasted himself for 40 days. So Jesus sets him up as the rescuer of the new Israel, as the new Moses. Moses actually prophesied, there are going to be ones like me who's going to come. You must listen to him. And that's Jesus. And so he sets himself up. Jesus, make sure that we understand this, that the number 40 in his fast was very important. And he was going to be tested in the whole area of provision. Are you going to trust God or not? But he also showed how we are to do battle with Satan's temptations when he said these three words, the scriptures say, or in another translation, it is written. When the enemy comes against us, he tries to get us to compromise. We can tell him, sorry, The scriptures say this. And that scripture, the logos, the word of God, the written word of God, is authoritative over any temptation you bring my way. Just like Jesus says here. He says, by the way, people don't live by bread alone. He's there to fast. He was called, he was led by the Holy Spirit to go into the desert, to fast and to pray and to take on the devil. And he says, people don't live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Could he have turned those stones into bread? Yes. As God, he could have done that. But that would have been wrong. Think about your life. How many times have you taken matters into your own hands instead of trusting God? I call that birthing Ishmael's. Ishmael's. When Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hand. Instead of trusting God's promise for the child Isaac, they birthed an Ishmael, and what happened after that? 
Oh my goodness. Destruction. Whenever I birth an Ishmael in my life, instead of waiting on God to provide, it is never good. It never does anything good. And Jesus teaches as disciples to wait on God. That He will provide. Notice how He uses the Scriptures. He says that the Scriptures say this. The Logos, if you will, is the written Word of God. The Scriptures. They will not change. They're timeless for all eternity. We can bank our life on the Scriptures. Aren't you glad we live in this era? We can say that Jesus, His Word, is His bond. But the second word in there, when he says, but by every word that comes from God, that's a different word. It's not logos actually there. It's, it's the word rhema. Rhema is a very interesting word. It's a word for word. Rhema is not the same as logos. Rhema is God's spoken word given to us in real time and he reveals his heart to us so that we may know how to live. The Logos Word of God never changes. In fact, it won't return back to Him void. It will always accomplish what it was intended to accomplish. And before Jesus wraps this world up, it's going to be fulfilled. But the Rhema voice of God is often discerned in our prayer life when we're seeking the counsel of God. And sometimes when God speaks to us, He says, let me explain this verse to you more completely. He often brings us back to the Logos. Sometimes he gives us insight as we're praying or meditating or even journaling. However, God, he he will speak to you. And you'll often wonder, was that really God or is that my subconscious making playing tricks with me? And sometimes we dismiss what God is trying to help us, to give us a word from him. And I encourage us as disciples to ask God, will you speak to me? Holy Spirit, will you help me understand more completely how I can follow you and enjoy you the rest of my life. Because he wants to speak. He wants to give us insight. However, irregardless of the rhema voice of God that you receive, Logos is always the authority. There's times when I thought I heard the voice of God and I missed it. Have you ever done that? I thought God was leading in this way and everything took took a left-hand turn. But I've never read the written Word of God, the Logos, and ever saw God, ever misunderstood what God wanted from the written Word. It is eternal, and any word that God gives you must submit to the Logos. They cannot be in competition. Matthew 5 shows us the second temptation of the devil. It says the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point on the temple. Try to picture that. Highest point on the temple. And he said this again, if you are the son of God. Can you see how much the identity of Jesus was tested right here? The first two temptations. It's called into question. And he says, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say this. And he quotes, he will order his angels to protect you. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. But Jesus responded. He said, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. 
Satan is actually quoting Psalm 91, but he's quoting it incorrectly, out of context. I highly recommend that you read Psalm 91. Read it with a lens by asking Jesus, what does it mean for me today? It's a very encouraging passage for those who are the beloved. Satan uses it in a bad way here. He tries to pull Jesus off into a dog and pony show, a power play. Show, just jump off this big building. The scriptures say that you believe in Jesus, that he won't even let your foot strike the ground. But Jesus would have no part with this. Because the abuse of his power for his own pleasure is wrong. And to put God to to the test in that way is equally wrong. He would have no part of it. We too should not put God to the test. We don't have to have our identity proven by miraculous movements of God. It's his love that lets us know who we are. We should respond just as Jesus did again in this instant when he said, but the scriptures say this. Do not test. Do not test God himself. Matthew 4, 8 through 9 has the last temptation. Verse 8 says, next the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan. Jesus told him, for the scriptures say, you see that again? The scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He's actually quoting from Deuteronomy 6.14, when the Israelites were commanded not to worship any of the gods of the neighboring nations. And so in this passage, there's a lot to unpack here. Satan had the gall to ask the creator of the universe to kneel. To take ownership of all the kingdoms. Jesus wisely said, no way. Now, Jesus could have compromised. The possibility of temptation isn't a real temptation unless obeying it is reality. So it was a real temptation to Jesus, but he chose not to obey it. He chose to submit himself to his Father. Jesus would one day gain all authority on heaven and earth. He would take back from the devil what he stole from us. But the path that he was going to go on would, would not be a shortcut. It's not instantaneous. He had, he had a pathway that was leading him to a cross. His road to authority was going to come through suffering, not through a quick fix. He had to go to Calvary. He had to pay the punishment for our sin on a cross. He had to die and be buried and be resurrected from the dead. And he had to resurrect. And in his resurrection, as we remember in Matthew 28, he now says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He did it the right way. Just think if he compromised what the world would be like. We can't even imagine what would have happened. But Jesus was obedient in all ways to his Father. Did you know in the Old Testament there were 613 laws that Jesus had to come to obey and fulfill? 613. If he compromised on one, boom, he's not the Messiah. 
if he compromised a thought, a word, an action, boom. He's out as Messiah. He had to live a perfect life before his father. And I don't know about you, Ten Commandments is hard to remember as opposed to 613 Old Testament laws fulfilled fully in Jesus Christ. A little bit about his 40 days of fasting. Sometimes we think that fasting makes us weak. And I found the longest fast I've ever done was only 10 days with water. And I found my body was weak. But you know what happens to your spirit when you fast? It actually gets stronger. Jesus, I believe, was at his peak when he was fasting. For us, we often fast for a reason because we have a lot of attachments. You know what an attachment is? It's things that attach to us so we don't have pure devotion to Jesus. Sometimes we live in this world and I'm attached to things, material things, because we need those to survive. But the desert fathers understood that going into the desert, there was nothing there to sidetrack you. In fact, they withdrew from society. When Rome legalized Christianity in 313 AD, there was a secularization of Christianity. And a lot of the desert fathers said, I'm getting attached to things of this world. It's become easy to be a Christian now. And so they would withdraw to go seek God in the desert and to learn to give up all the things they were attached to except a, instead of pure devotion to Jesus. And I, I just encourage you to read about the Desert Fathers. Some of those stories, especially about Antonius, are very interesting. So we often fast. We seek God. We go in solitude so that the attachments to the things of the world are gone. Pray for your pastor. Sometimes public ministry creates attachments. Would Jesus live for the praise of men? Or would he only live for the praise of his Father? It's very important that we get that straight. For you and for me, pray for your pastor that he, he hears from God and, and God does some wonderful things in his life and in his spirit. So where do we go this week? How can we follow Jesus? I want to talk in three areas as we close this out today. The first one is the area of identity. I challenge you to ask God to reveal how beloved you truly are to him this week. Will you dare ask God, how much do you love me? Would you sit before God in quietness and solitude and say, I want you to tell me how much. You love me. I just challenge you. If, if there's one thing you do this week, it's to ask God that question. If you don't sense his love, begin to ask people in the church, why am I not feeling loved by God? The second challenge I have for you is around the word of God. Jesus knew the written word of God very well, but so did Satan. And so Jesus had to understand context to correct him and to combat him. We need to know the written word of God very well. So I encourage you. I know you do the read and respond reading. I think it's a great thing that you do. Be people of the word. Get into the words that the word of God can get into you. But I also want to challenge you to practice the rhema voice of God. Asking him specifically for you in real time. 
What does God have in store for you? What does he have for you? Is it a new assignment? You know, in the West, we often think that spirituality is adding more. But you know what the Desert Fathers actually did back in the third century? They believed that spirituality was often shedding things. Antonius sold everything he owned so that he could go seek God. For 20 years, he locked himself in a desert. And boy, did God grow him. He finally, he was called out and he did many supernatural things of healings and leading people to Christ, uh, casting down of demons. He, uh, the emperor actually consulted him all the time, but he spent a lot of his time with the poor and the prisoners. And he, he had this supernatural ministry that God was using him because you know why? He emptied himself of himself. And Christ was alive and ruling and reigning. So for him, spirituality was actually emptying myself of all the attachments to things of the world that I have. And God used them powerfully. But towards the end of his life, he realized that he was attracted to some of the things of his public ministry again. And he went back to the desert. I think that's a rhythm that we can practice. I'm attached to something outside of Jesus. I need to give it up. So that I can have pure devotion to Him. So my challenge to you in the Word of God is to depend on the Logos, on the written Word of God, and ask God to speak to you through the power of His Holy Spirit in a practical way. And lastly, it comes back to the temptations. Provision. Will you begin to trust God to provide all your needs and not take matters into your own hands? Will you make that decision today? That Father knows best. His timing is always the best. Protection. Will we trust God to be our protector and not put Him to the test? And the last one is that of power. When we start to demand that people notice us, I'll give you all the kingdoms. The pathway to spirituality is found in humility. Will we say no to me and yes to the glory of Jesus? And when we lift him high, all people will be drawn to him. I'm going to ask the worship team, Christine and the team, come on up. And I'm going to close this in prayer. So if you'll just do me a favor, just kind of open your hands before the Lord as a sign that you're going to depend on him. Just kind of lift your hands up where you're seated. And I'm going to close this in prayer. So Jesus, we ask you to teach us. We ask you to disciple us. We ask you to help us to begin to practice our Christian life like you modeled for us. Grow us. We want to become like you, Jesus. Help us to surrender things that need to be surrendered. Help us to celebrate things that need to be celebrated. But most of all, this week, Jesus, I pray, will you allow every believer in this room to hear your voice, how much you love them, how much you enjoy them, that we are the apple of your eye. Will you help us to be on an all-out attack when the enemy tries to say it's not true? To walk through life as your beloved. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.